Hey, 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 everybody. This is Rob Liefeld. We are back with another edition of Observations. Observations, where we go out of our way to talk comics and pop culture and examine all of it as best we can, um, mostly from my point of view since I was a kid. Hence the moniker Rob Zervations. Um, been doing this as a comic fan, 74, 75. Yes, 1974, 1975. It, it is, it is, uh, further in the rearview mirror every time I get on the mic with you guys. But we, uh, love discussing comics that I have been pulling off the spinner racks and the shelves for all these years that kind of really, uh, made my life, uh, marked out my, my career path. They, they gave me a sense of purpose. They enlightened me, excited me. Like so many of you who, um, read comics and were, were energized by them and, and have either pursued them as a collector, as a consumer, uh, became part of the industry in some capacity. The same happened to me. Maybe you sell comics. Maybe you have a comic store. Maybe you edit comics. Maybe you publish comics. Maybe you make the comics. All of us are united by this energy. And now with comic books becoming giant gabillion dollar, um, franchises. Yes, I said gabillion. Um, sounds like a good word, but these new, uh, machines of, 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 of commerce that they have become to an entire generation and toys and, and, and knickknacks and tchotchkes and, and, and every part of our community and, and, and our, our society and our culture. There's comic books and comic book characters and superheroes. And, uh, so we, we love to deep dive here. And for 20 episodes, uh, uh, I have taken you back to my childhood. I have relived the excitement of so many of the visionary talents that I love, the, the storylines, the epic crossovers, the events that marked so much excitement in my life and in the path and the life of the industry. I mean, Watchmen, Dark Knight, you know, George Perez, John Byrne, Frank Miller, Jim Starlin, so much of this shaped all that is to come. I say it here all the time, the past informs the future. And today we are going back to one of my favorite periods in my life. Uh, we're just going to call this episode the L boys. Today I bring you the L boys. Yes, we are here. We are, uh, knocking on the nineties. It is the summer of 1988, San Diego comic con 1988, not the convention center that you have visited. If you have gone in the last, you know, 20, the last 29 years, not that convention center. Now the Civic Center, uh, what is now called the Civic Center was where Comic Con was hosted for the better part of, uh, 16, 16 years. That is where I went down with my dad in 1982 on the train for a weekend, uh, father-son sojourn where he just wanted to indulge me and, and, and knew my passion and that I could meet so many people in comics at this giant gathering. It was a giant gathering. It was the biggest gathering, biggest Comic-Con I had seen. Prior to 1982's Comic-Con, I would go to what are now referred to as hotel shows. <laughs> hotel shows. They were, they were always, I guess, hotel shows, but in retrospect, it's a ballroom in a hotel. In Anaheim, there was many held at the Disneyland Hotel. It's no longer, uh, set up for these kind of events. That hotel still stands. Um, adjacent to the downtown Disney. If you ever go down there, you pass it on your way to the parking, but that, that hotel is there. And so I have fond memories of those ballrooms in those hotel shows. 
But again, you're, you're talking about a ballroom and a few hundred maybe w between the, the ballroom and, and the entryway and the, the panel rooms, maybe a thousand, couple thousand people max. But San Diego, this civic center, it, it was both sides of the civic center and packed with people. So this is where San Diego took place all the way up till 1990. The new convention center has a very near and dear place in my heart because 1991 was the launch of it in that building and I was fresh off. X-Force number one had launched. So I did my very first X-Force signing in the pub, to the public at the new convention center. It was a nice bookmark for all that I had, uh, you know, uh, uh, experienced in the eight years, nine years prior to that at the civic center. And, and so last week, uh, I went down to San Diego and my wife and I tooled around and I had never taken her to the Civic Center and I walked back to the courtyard and, and walked up to the building itself, took fit video, took footage, cause this is a magic time for me. And today this is a magic time. The L Boys. Dubbed the L Boys by one Todd McFarlane. Summer of 1988, San Diego Comic Con 1988, the entire comic convention, the entire comic universe still converged on San Diego. That is the one aspect that hasn't changed. The restaurants, the hotels, the Biltmore, the, uh, the Holiday Inn, the USS Grant, all these hotels, uh, that, that they're still functioning, that still book people for shows today, or the premier, you know, destinations where you booked it when you went down to visit San Diego Comic Con that was held in the Civic Center, which again was enormous. I had never gone into a convention and seen you know, more than, than five people who had, you know, created comics at that time. I mean, I'm going to give you a, yeah, an idea for, for, for one of my first creation conventions. The art, the, the guests were George Perez and Michael Golden. Michael Golden of Micronauts, um, and, uh, and some Batman family. And then George Perez of the Avengers, Fantastic Four, Teen Titans, Justice League. You know, that's, that's two great names, but it's two people and everybody crowds on those two tables and gets in line. And another one was, Jim Shooter and John Romita Jr., okay? Generally, if you were able to get one or two good comic guests, they'd have other, like a Star Trek guest or somebody from The Land of the Lost or, you know, somebody from, you know, Six Million Dollar Man, Space 1999. They'd have TV guests too, but the comic book, comic book guests, you'd be lucky to get two quality uh, people who are putting out comic books at these local hotel shows. So, San Diego Comic Con, oh my gosh. I mean, again, you're talking 50, 60, 100 you know, people who make comic books, people from the East Coast, comic books were not West Coast based yet. They were not, they were still primarily 99% produced out of the East Coast in the, in the offices of New York, uh, DC Comics, and Marvel Comics, both Manhattan based. And so much of the talent lived on the East Coast. Um, FedEx was just roaring into its prominence so that you could get pages somewhere next day and they were starting to get their, you know, FedEx accounts where you could do overnight delivery. When I first broke in, it was no, you couldn't do anything other than two-day delivery. No overnight delivery. Even if you offered to pay for it yourself, I mean, there were all sorts of haggles, special, uh, special favors that had to be done. But by, by early 90, you could do, if you were on a good selling book, you could do, you know, overnight. You could skip that two-day, two-day rule and, and, and do the direct overnight in the morning, 10.30 a.m., you know, whatever. But so the East Coast people, they came out, they flocked to San Diego because of the weather, the beautiful July, August weather. 
1988, I have been in comic books for about one year. I was hired in April of 1987 at the WonderCon. WonderCon was an independent uh, convention launching its very first year down in Oakland, California. I was fortunate enough to drive there with a friend named Hank Canals. He is now an executive editor at DC Comics. We took a road trip. We spent the night at my aunt and uncle's house. We got up the next day. Literally, everybody there, every publisher there, which is why I was going when I went to WonderCon. And WonderCon had not been uh, purchased by San Diego at that time. They were still, they were independently owned and operated when they launched and for about a decade following. So, in 1987, April 1987, Hank Canals and I drive from Orange County to San Francisco. We spend the night uh, with my aunt and uncle who are on the way. The next day we go to Oakland, not San Francisco, Oakland. And all the independent companies wouldn't look at my samples. And DC Comics, Chick Giordano was very polite, said he'd sit, take my, my packet, my 10-page packet back with him. But then there was a long line. And Mark Grunewald, a uh, really top editor at Marvel Comics, was looking over portfolios. And I stood in the long line. I was probably like 12th in line. And when I finally got up there, I've told this story so often at, at different conventions, but he shuffled through my pages. They were Youngblood samples, the, the book that I would eventually do in 1992. I would launch on my own, and it would launch in Image Comics. Youngblood, I had eight pages and then some pinups. So eight storytelling pages, really dense between eight and ten panels a page, I was doing that George Perez thing, and Mark Grunewald rose from behind the table, extended his arm to me, and said, Welcome to comic books. Welcome to Marvel Comics. You're hired. And you got to understand, I'm a teenager. This is my dream. I'm getting hired in 1987. Oh, my gosh. You know, so uh, I'm about to turn 19. I'm thrilled. And that drive home, that six, seven-hour drive home, that Saturday night from WonderCon, I felt like a dog with my head out the window. The wind just blowing on my face. I could not be more excited that I was going to be uh, working in comic books. I had broken through everything that I had wanted to do since pulling those comic books off. The spinner rack in 74 and 75 was about to come true for me. It was exhilarating. By this time, by 1988, the L Boys, I, uh, I am attending San Diego Comic-Con as a professional. As a published professional, the year since I got hired, so the, 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 you know, year and three months since I'd been actually working in the business, drawing a paycheck in the business, I had had a couple short stories published by Marvel and DC, and my third issue of my miniseries, Hawk and Dove, was launching. And, uh, so I was a known quantity. I was a new name in comics. My, you know, work was out there. And as you're going to discover as I discuss this, Everybody in comics is aware of everybody else in comics. I don't look at it really from the writer's viewpoint. I look at it from the artist's viewpoint, and I always have, and I still do. I want to see who the new guys creating the images, the visuals, because as I have beaten that drum time and again, without the visuals, you're in the novel business. And I'm not in the business of novels. I am in the comic book, the great American tradition of comic books, where we draw pictures and have word balloons and captions, and we tell things through images. And I was a proud, published member of the comic book world now as part of the fraternity. Now, along the way, when I was breaking in and going to all the other shows since 1982, because I never missed a San Diego once I started going with my dad. And eventually, a couple years later, when I got my license, I would just drive down myself. So there was no looking back from 1982 on. It was a great date on the calendar. And now I am there as a published professional. I'm thrilled. Now, I know a lot of guys in the business. Obviously, I have grown up 
pulling these comic books off the rack, you know that I am a giant, huge, humongous fan of John Byrne, George Perez, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson. I don't say Marshall Rogers often enough, but I should say Marshall Rogers, Phil Sienkiewicz, Neil Adams, you know, you name it. Love these guys. Love the business. Walt Simonson. And now I'm a, I'm, I'm a pro too, but along the way, as I was bumming around, you know, making my way towards being in the comic book industry. And I, I will tell you the years before I would always stand next to the editors, like Mark Grunewald looking at the samples. I would stand to the side of the table and listen to the advice that they would give other artists. And I distinctly remember in 1986 standing next to a guy at San Diego as he was showing the samples and there were some Spider-Man sam samples. And it was just Spider-Man swinging around buildings, and some of it was not drawn particularly well, but it was super, super dark lead, super, like you couldn't even erase it. And the editor was saying, hey, look, these are nice shots of Spider-Man swinging, but this doesn't tell me a story. These are really just kind of a bunch of pinups on a page of different swinging shots. Do me a shot of Peter Parker and Mary Jane talking in the apartment. Have it get heated. Have them, you know, show some emotion. Have Peter jump out the window, you know, and, 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 you know, unleash his web line and swing past the Daily Bugle and then suddenly be attacked by the Vulture. And that's enough. That's all I need to see. That's a great three and four pages. And again, he, he said, show me these characters in plain clothes. Mary Jane, Peter Parker, J. Jonah Jameson, all this stuff. So I was always to the side listening, making notes to myself. I wasn't showing my samples yet. I knew. I remember that summer, that summer of 1986, I had some Imperial Guard samples I had done up. Uh, Imperial Guard is Marvel's version of the Legion. I love them. They, they, they came to prominence in the pages of the X-Men. I had done some, uh, page, uh, samples with the Imperial Guard, but they weren't up to snuff, so I didn't bother showing them. I knew better. I knew that they were not going to be my ticket in. There was no scamming my way into this business. Now, I had shown prior, right after that, right after that summer, uh, that fall of 86, I started mailing off my samples to a lot of small independent companies, a lot of black and white publishers, and there was a ton of them at the time. Malibu Comics was one of them. Megaton Comics was another. Um, and there, 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 there was just Dark Horse Comics really started out publishing black and white comic books. They hadn't really gotten into the color game yet. And there were a lot of, um, like funny animal parody comic books. So many people had black and white comic books that they were publishing. But, uh, I got to know a gentleman named Eric Larson, whose work I had seen published in 83 and 84 in the pages of a book called Megaton. And Megaton actually had Jackson Geis, who was called Butch Geis at the time, Sam De La Rosa, an inker that I had seen do a bunch of work over at Marvel, um, this Eric Larson cat who was doing a, a, a comic strip called Vanguard in the back about this alien. And in, in the Vanguard script, uh, story, in the strip of Vanguard, in the second or third issue, a, a character called Savage Dragon appears. And that's the first appearance of Savage Dragon. And I really liked Eric Larson's work. I saw a lot of cool stuff in his work. I was very um, taken by his work. And I started following his career. And and between, you know, 84 to 88, Eric had uh, forged a path uh, in in doing a lot of independent comics. He, he graduated at Colored Independent Comics. The DN Agents uh, was one of them. He did some work for, um, I think it was called AC Comics. The Heroes of Justice or... Um, Sentinels of Liberty. He, he, he had been doing a lot of, uh, independent comics. Again, the DNA agent stuff, uh, I, I really enjoyed. And then I started seeing Eric's work pop up, uh, over at, um, DC Comics. And he was doing all sorts of 
short stories. He did a Teen Titans film. He did an Outsiders film. Um, he was definitely making his way into the business. He had graduated from these independent jobs into fully, um, you know, working at DC on a series. He was graduating into doing the art chores on Doom Patrol, which was a comic I really dug. I always liked Doom Patrol going all the way back to the early reprints that I encountered with the original team. DC did a soft kind of reboot of them in the late seventies, tried to, um, have a new version of the team. And I, I was all over that. Joe Staten drew it. Jim Apero did the covers. I was totally into it. So when DC relaunched Doom Patrol, Steve Lytle did the first few issues and then Eric Larson took it, took over. And man, that Larson stuff is great. All of this is occurring in 1987 and 1988. This is when I'm doing some backup features in Warlord. Uh, I'm doing a secret origin story. I'm doing Marvel Universe entries in Marvel Universe handbook. I'm doing some who's who. Um, it's, it's exciting. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking in and Eric Larson has broken in right before me. And, uh, and then there is a gentleman named Ron Lim. Ron Lim was doing, um, black and white comic books and, uh, a book called X Mutants, a book called The New Humans. These were the books that Ron Lim was breaking in on. And Ron Lim and Eric Larson and myself obviously all are united by the last name L. And there's one more of us, a guy who was breaking in in 87, 88, a gentleman named Jim Lee who was on Alpha Flight to start out. That's the first time I remember seeing Jim's work, and I remember he had kind of a John Byrne bend to his style, so he immediately grabbed my attention. But this time period from like 1985, when Frank Miller is rocking the world with Dark Knight, and Alan Moore is rocking your world with Watchmen, and Marvel is kind of on autopilot with black costume Spider-Man, and the Captain slash soon-to-be U.S. agent, and the Gray Hulk, and the bearded uh, Walt Simonson, and as I've covered in recent episodes... The talent was either burned out, super tired, or leaving Marvel and going to do some exciting stuff over at DC Comics, like John Byrne, who had relaunched uh, Superman to, to so much fanfare, he was on the Today Show. I mean, X-Men never put him on the Today Show, Fantastic Four didn't put him on the Today Show, but Superman put him on the Today Show, and he did the cover to Time Magazine. I mean, John Byrne was just having a great, great time doing Superman at DC Comics. So, Marvel, there was a dearth of new talent. Art Adams, Mike Mignola, and uh, Kevin Maguire had been the new faces that I had seen, but that just wasn't like when the late 70s, when Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, Howard Chaikin, John Byrne, George Perez, Marshall Rogers, I'm Already Out of Breath, Jim Starlin, so many, seven, eight, a dozen new guys worth, worth checking out, uh, hit the scene and hit the scene hard. And, 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 and well, Bill Sienkiewicz, producing really great stuff. Dave Cockrum, Paul Smith. So there wasn't a whole lot of new talent. So suddenly the dam burst wide open. And I'm going to tell you what unites the L boys. Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Ron Lim, Rob Liefeld. It's not just the L. And I'm going to get you, I'm going to get to why we're called the L boys in a minute, but it's not just the L. We are the children of the 20 observation episodes that you've already heard the, the 20 observation episodes that, that you have walked through with me. That is the, uh, we are the fruit of those trees that we, we, we are, we were all planted in a world of X-Men by John Byrne and Paul Smith and Bill Sienkiewicz and, 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 and late in the, in the 86, 87, 88, 
Mark Silvestri. Um, we're Walt Simonson's, you know, protégés. We're Art Adams. We're, we're George Perez's. We're Michael Golden's. These are the comics that inform us. We are all roughly the same age. I am the youngest. Ron Lim is a couple years older than me. Eric Larson is like five, six years older than me. Uh, Jim Lee is like four or five years older than me, depending on where, where we land on the calendar. But I am the youngest. I am, uh, at, at, in 1988, I am 21 years old or 20, about to turn 21 in October. And, and, uh, I arrive at San Diego Comic Con. I know Eric Larson. I hunt him down first. I've seen him. The reason I was mentioning like 86, 85 different shows, and I'd actually been able to go to Chicago Comic Con the year before in 1985 and 86. And Eric was always at those shows. And I would always hang out next to Eric's table. He was always very approachable, very kind, very fun. And look at the new work that he was doing. He had shown me, I think in 86, he was drawing his first story for Marvel, a Thor Hulk fight. I think Jim Shooter wrote it. I think Vinnie Coletta ended up inking it. I, I saw it in, in pencil form. I was following Eric's ascent. I was following Ron Lim's ascent. Ron and I got hired at WonderCon. He was hired by Mark Grunewald about 45 minutes after me uh, that April of 1987. So he was already starting to work at Marvel on Cyforce. I was doing Hawk and Dove when I arrived at, uh, you know, San Diego Comic-Con in 1988, summer of 88. This is so fun. I remember it like it was yesterday. I got my jean jacket. I'm, 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 I'm walking in. I got my portfolio. I'm one of the, 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 the published, you know, contributors to comics. I'm in the fraternity and I am, uh, standing there in the aisle down, you know, three quarters of the way down the hall where the artist alley section was, which was always uh, positioned next to where Marvel and DC publishing was. And I am chatting it up with Eric Larson and we are just talking. And here comes this guy, this guy with a mullet, kind of a curly mullet. He's got a jean jacket too. He's got jeans. He walks up and he goes, Hey, Eric, what's up, bud? Bud, what's up? And, uh, Eric says, Hey, how you doing? And good to see you, Todd. And Todd's like, Oh, what's up, bud? And, and he extends his hand out to me and I say, Oh, hi, Todd McFarlane. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm Rob Liefeld. And that's when Todd says, The Elboys, Liefeld, Nim, Larson, Lee. I, I, I met all of you but Ron Lim. I gotta, I gotta meet Ron Lim. The Elboys, you, you, you guys are taking over. Larson, Lee, Liefeld, Lim. And I froze. This guy was outstanding. Todd's personality is larger than life. He is so damn funny. And I was just smiling ear to ear because I had not put a face to Todd McFarlane yet. So Todd McFarlane to me, I had followed his career. He hit the ground running for me as a comic book fan. I was first exposed to his work in 1985. I was buying a book from Marvel called Coyote. I thought Coyote was an absolute awesome design. He was a uh, creation by Steve Englehart. He was being published by Marvel's Epic Comic Line. And there was, a, I think, a guy named Chaz Truog was drawing him. And Chaz had a kind of an uh, improvisational, kind of sketchy style, I guess you would say. And so I saw Todd McFarlane's work appear in an issue of Coyote that I was uh, buying my senior year. Very, very clearly, I remember like picking that up on a weekend in the afternoon, getting home, checking it out, looking at this new guy, Todd McFarlane, because his work looked like 
guys whose work I liked. It reminded me of Art Adams. It reminded me of Todd Mc, uh, of, of <laughs> it reminded me of Art Adams. It reminded me of George Perez. It reminded me of John Byrne. Todd was also of the same class that we were. He is from that late seventies, early eighties. He grew up, uh, you know, on a diet of George Perez and John Byrne and Frank Miller and Art Adams, who had rocked all of us as early as '84. And Art, as I've said, Art, Art's impact was extreme. It was enormous. And and so I had followed Todd. He had done some Coyote issues. He did a backup in Coyote, also called Scorpio Rose. I was following his career. He took over a book that I was buying at DC called Infinity Inc. So Coyote was published by Marvel's Epic line, but suddenly the next time I see him after Coyote is over at DC doing a book called Infinity Inc., which I had bought because it was a spinoff of All-Star Squadron, and it was done by Jerry Ordway, who I had really admired. But Jerry had left the book, and and then there was another penciler named Don Newton, and he passed away. And... Todd got the gig. He did one fill-in and turned into a two-year gig on Infinity Inc., maybe slightly more. And Todd's work was instantly identifiable because he did these crazy page layouts. He'd have the characters in Infinity Inc. like just standing off the side of the page with no functionality. They're not interacting with any other character. It's like a, a side pinup. And then a couple of times he'd have like a character holding up panels. And look, if his um, desire was to get you know noticed, and to break out and catch your attention, it it worked. And it was his desire to get noticed. You know, I think Todd knew that maybe his, while his draftsmanship, his artistic skills were catching up, he would break out with this design uh, element to all the pages. They all, I mean, I mean, people just randomly posing that have nothing to do with the story. And then the, the, the storytelling pages were to the side, to the left, to the right. Characters lifting up pages, characters, I mean, characters lifting up panels, characters leaning on panels. So um, he was he was given a couple of really heavy-handed anchors. Uh, I, I had been in comics long enough to know T Tony Dezaniga, very very talented man, had inked over everybody from John Buscema to John Byrne and everybody in between. He was a very competent, uh, complete uh, illustrator on his own. One of the class of Filipino uh, finishers, um, you know, uh, European artists who had uh, really come alive in the 70s, uh, Alfredo Alcala, uh, uh, Tony Dezaninga, Pablos Marcos, just to name a few. These guys are amazing talents in their own right. And generally they were assigned uh, finishing gigs or over younger pencilers. A finishing gig is when they are doing actually more of the art over the breakdowns. I've seen some of the breakdowns that, like, say, John Buscema would give to Tony Dezaninga. And then Tony Dezaninga was so talented, he could render a full Tarzan or a Conan image on his own. But the storytelling and the breakdowns of the figures and the interaction was done by John Buscema in a lighter fashion. John was not doing full rendered pencils. Breakdowns and finishes are a fantastic subject that we will cover on a future edition because it is a lost art form. It truly is a lost art form in this age of super tight pencils or digital pencils. We And, and now we just want more of a... a, a a line tracer. Inkers are still very talented as artists, but so many super, super, super tight pencilers. And that's really was started by Art Adams and John Byrne, more so by Art Adams. It looked like that stuff was etched into the paper. Um, and my generation, uh, the, the, the L boys on would, would continue that habit of this super tight penciling. But Todd, Todd stuff was being by Tony Dezaninga or really heavy handed 
finishers and inkers for about two years on Infinity Ink. But his style was very, uh, I would see, uh, some George Perez. I would see some Art Adams in the faces. I mean, I was, I was all in on Todd McFarlane following his stuff on Infinity Ink. Um, did I think he was as good as Art Adams? Did, no, I don't think any of us are as good as Art Adams. Full, full confession. Um, and, and I'm going to get to, I'll just do it right now. The, my peer group, these guys that I'm going to talk about for now a long time because we are going to start covering this period of this era. I don't revere them. I do not hold them in special regard. I respect them. I respect each of my peers. I know what each of them are capable of and what each of them have accomplished, but I don't revere them. I, I don't revere them like a John Buscema or a Neil Adams or a John Byrne. I, I don't feel like any of us have done work that is on par with the legends. I think we're really good. We know what we're doing. That's up to you for you to decide as, as fans, as listeners. But John Buscema, with his eyes closed, could draw two old men walking down a prairie road and blow your mind. He is Frank Frazetta, Hal Foster level illustrator ridiculous. Neil Adams is an artist that in his 80s is producing work that most men in their 30s could never touch. He is a next level uh, Mount Rushmore talent. Uh, I don't feel that way about my peers. I think they are super talented. I think they are really accomplished commercial uh, storytellers. I think we have great instincts as a group. I think our class kicks all sorts of ass. But when I speak of them, if I don't revere them in the way you do, understand that I have seen all the tricks, the smokes, the mirrors. I know what sources everybody's pulling from. I am a student of this game and I have studied each of my peers and I have been there when they show me different tricks and, uh, we're all really good. We speak fluent comic book. We're great. Um, there's only one of us that I think is like a Buscema, Neil Adams level talent and he is not an L boy. He is Mark Silvestri who is so ridiculously gifted with his draftsman skit, draftsman skills that it has always and continues to blow my mind to this day. Now, as I said, do we all kick ass? Yes, we do. Um, and it's fun. And I, and I love my class. I love the L boys plus McFarlane and Celestri and whatever. But again, Todd McFarlane dubs us right then the L boys. And it really put it in perspective. And it also showed that Todd McFarlane, who had been making comics for professionally about three and a half years at that point, he, we were on his radar. He already knew Eric. He and Eric had met in another convention. That's where the familiarity between them two, them, uh, came from. But he immediately goes, Oh, Liefeld, the L boys, Larson, Lee, Liefeld, Lim. I mean, boom, the L boys. He's paying attention, just like I pay attention. Just like I was always picking up every new comic, hoping that there was someone new to blow my mind, or now someone new that I had to compete with. Todd was aware, and Todd, like us, grew up on all of those comic books from the 70s and, 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 and the 80s. And like I said, Every episode that we have spent together is the basis for everything that is to come because those are the comics that immediately impacted us as kids, as teenagers, and that is why we got into comics and and those are the guys we wanted to be or exceed, compete with, aspire to, you name it. They were um they were the reasons we were pursuing jobs in comics. None of us were getting rich, okay? We were all Probably getting between $125, $150 a page. I know Todd has told me when he started out, he got 60. I think my first gig was $80 a page. And then I slowly got to $100, $120 a page. So you figured out by 22 in 1988, that's what you're making a month. Now, was it, was it 
better than delivering pizzas or doing construction or bussing tables. But as, as I had been prior to that, yes, it was because we are able to build ourselves creative, creatively. And there was also something we all knew about, which was royalties. And royalties, once they kicked in, would get you a house on the beach in Malibu, like Mark Silvestri, who had become a legend, who everyone heard about. And the next year following this, I would go to my very first Mark Silvestri after San Diego party on the beach in Malibu in his beach house. I mean, if the waves kicked up too much, they were hitting his window and his walls. He was that much on the beach. He drove a silver Porsche. Mark Silvestri was the guy who had it made when we were all breaking in. He was closing in on his second year on the X-Men. And the X-Men was and maintained and, you know, was still the uncontested number one top draw in the business. Todd, at this point, when he introduces himself to me and monikers us and gives us the, the title of the L-Boys, he is um, in the early stages of Spider-Man. He has done the Hulk work that blew me away. Following Infinity Inc. and the heavy-handed uh, finishing, he went to Marvel and he was offered by Bob Harris who would offer myself and Jim Lee jobs in the ex-office, Bob Harris had given him a gig to do the Hulk and to produce it monthly. And Todd really hit me and, and, and impacted me in, in a big way with his Hulk work. I loved his Hulk. He drew the Hulk more like a creature, hunched over, like with a hunchback in it. And, and, and he took the original Jack Kirby uh, design with the heavy, heavy, heavy brows and really eccentric. I mean, those, those brows and that forehead, they were like extra, extra pieces that were glued on his head. They were, they were like, um, really jet, jutting out and, and heavy looming over his eyes. I mean, they were, they were a distinct facial quality, but Todd had a really commercial line. And that's what people would say about all of us, essentially, that we, we produced a really commercial line. That commercial line was in service of what we had seen from John Byrne and Terry Austin and from most recently Art Adams and, and, and Terry Austin. And, uh, and Todd's Hulk stuff was awesome. Hulk had come out all through 87 and Todd had really made his mark on that and was graduating to do Spider-Man. And he was in his early stages of Spider-Man when we meet, when we, you know, make that encounter on the floor of San Diego. But let me tell you something. It does not end there. That is just the beginning. The, Oh, life of the Elboys. i got to meet them. Okay? We start talking right there on the floor. Eric Larson, myself, Todd, what are you working on? What are you working on? What are you working on? Where are you staying? Where are you staying? Where are you staying? What are you doing? What are you doing? This is probably three in the afternoon. Well, Todd decides, well, we should hang out. We should grab a, grab a bite to eat. Todd's very personable. And as I think I've established, it just has a little bit of uh, of of crazy in that charm that makes you, you don't want to, you know, leave his side. And I'm going to tell you that the next 12 hours, we don't leave each other's side. Larson, Liefeld, McFarlane wander out of San Diego Con uh, Convention Center that day on a Friday. And we exit. I remember opening the doors. And, and here's the thing. I was just listening. Todd started talking when he said, Cowboys! And I don't remember him stopping for about six hours. And my wife has witnessed Todd in my home in 1993 talk for like five hours straight. And it is something she still still talks about. You think I can talk? And baby, I can talk. Todd can talk me under a table. And anyone 
who is listening right now, who is Dr. Todd, knows exactly what I'm talking about. And again, I am a talker myself. But Todd starts talking, and he's like, oh, yeah, what, 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 what was your first gig? And the thing about Todd is, he always knows the answer. He knew what my first gig was. You know, what was your first published? Oh, was it, was it that dog, uh, that world, or, uh, or the secret origins, or, you know, I had actually done some published work in 1987 with Megaton Comics, the same comic book company that I told you about with Eric Larson, but my DC work was, um, first with, uh, a warlord bonus book. It was in, they were, they were doing it for young talent, bonus books, and they were putting young fledgling pencilers that they would, Discover, even though I got hired by Marvel, DC got me the work fast enough. Remember, Dick Giordano took my packet back to New York, then contacted me and said, hey, we want to get you started. We want to give you one of these bonus books. And the summer when the bonus books came out in 87 or 80, late, late 87, early 88 was when your book, your, your bonus book was inside the comic book. Like I did a Warlord bonus book inside Warlord. So it was an adventure of Warlord, 16 page, standalone, you know, stapled inside. Pretty cool. To, 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 to see if you could meet a deadline, if you could tell a story. From there, I got a, a secret origin of Nightshade, uh, which I think about 17, 18 page story. And then from there, it was off the races with Hawk and Dove, which I had begged and begged and begged and had to wait for everybody else to pass, uh, before I got the gig. And I had the juice for Hawk and Dove. And like I said, I think second or third issue is out and we are cooking. And the, the, the response to Hawk and Dove is great because when I sit down, I can see people have Hawk and Doves for me to sign. They're, they're buying the book. They're interacting. They're excited. Um, but Todd is like, well, what was your first work? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what are you doing, Eric? And, and he's sizing everybody up. And I remember we walked over to the USS Grant where Todd was staying. He's like, oh, come up to my room. And uh, we just hopped in the elevator. And in the elevator, I remember Todd turned to me specifically and said, oh, bud, oh, I know where you are. You're, you're, you're working like, like the figure and the gesture and, 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 and the rib cage and the muscles and the arms. You're, you're, you're spending all that time. And while you're doing that, I've already aced it. And bud, I'm drawing extra bricks on the building and extra girders and extra backwards. I'm putting the extra effort in to, to, to outwork you and, and outdistance myself from guys like you. And I was like, whoa, this guy, he's coming at me like, like already kind of laying in the, like, like, you know, I can shoot threes from all over the floor. I mean, again, I'm always going to go back to basketball. That's, there's so many great analogies. Um, but he, he's, he's, he's laying into like, part of it's like, I know where you're at. I remember being that guy, you know, starting out in 84, 85. And now here it is, 1988. You're on your early gigs and you're working. And he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. It was storytelling, layouts, figure work. And Todd's like, Basically going, now I'm doing skylines and extra windows and the details and Spider-Man's a perfect vehicle. And so we get upstairs, Eric Larson and I drop our portfolios. We all sit down on the beds and the couch and, you know, it's middle of the afternoon and we are just catching up and talking about editors and comic books. And, oh, that new guy and all oh, McGuire with those crazy faces. Yeah, I see, I see you're doing a little McGuire and, and you're doing a little Art Adams and, oh yeah, John Burke. I mean, we're just name dropping and, just chit-chatting. And Larson has just a complete uh ease and and is and, and is just completely relaxed and so am I. And 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 suddenly the sun is setting, so it means it's like seven thirty, you know, Friday night, San Diego. We're all there through Sunday. Saturday's the big day. You know, we had all kind of been mulling around at that point, meeting and greeting people, and then Todd goes, Oh, let's get some dinner. And uh we went to Bennigan's. Bennigan's, which was, uh, in, 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 in 1988 in Southern California. Come on, man. Chicken wings, burgers, 
you know, chicken tenders. Uh, we, we found a Bennigan's in San Diego and we went and got soda and burgers. And here's the deal. There was a party that night, a DC Comics party. It was held at the Biltmore in one of their big ballrooms because that's where the parties were held at San Diego was in the ballrooms. And we had at, during dinner, we had talked about uh, other guys who we really dig. Obviously, Art Adams came up a lot. Um, Jim Lee was just early on in Alpha Flight. We, we didn't really know what to make of him yet other than he was an Elboy. Okay. Ron Lim was doing two books a month at that point. Uh, he was doing Cyforce, which was part of the new universe. And there was a second book. Uh, maybe it was Silver Surfer. Maybe it was Captain America. He was already getting up and running, but Ron was booking work. He could do 44 pages a month. We're going to touch on that in a minute, but there was a guy that was brought up named Mike Mignola. And Todd would, it was so, so memorable to me, memorable to me because Todd would pronounce it Magnoglia, Mike, Mike Magnoglia. And so we talked about his work. And while he was chomping down his burger, Todd goes, that guy, that guy, I, 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 you ever had a guy like this? I meet this guy like, like four or five times. And every time when I, when I walk up to him, uh, he looks at me like, like we never met and, and he doesn't know me. And, he, and, and, and he says, uh, hi, uh, who, who are you? Who are you? And I'm always like, I'm Todd McFarlane. I met you like effing, you know, four months ago. So this comes into play in a few minutes when we enter the DC Comics party at about 9.30, 10 p.m. on a Friday night in 1988 in San Diego. And as we are walking in, um, I have this really cool, I, I had been waiting to wear it. I had gotten this really awesome jean jacket with the superman uh emblems all up and down it and it was just a really cool uh a gift that i had a, a cool a cool jean jacket and my editor on hawk and dove had all, also been the superman editor so when we entered the biltmore after leaving the uh the the, the bennigan's our awesome dinner at bennigan's our high-end dinner at bennigan's after we had chomped down the chicken wings and we headed over to the dc party Todd and Eric and I walk in. Now, again, guys, we've been together since 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock turned into 3 o'clock, turned into 6 o'clock, turned into 7 o'clock. Now it's 9.30, 10 p.m. We're walking in. I see Jerry Ordway, who is a sweetheart of a man, who has always been so great to me, gave me great advice. I actually stayed with him earlier in the year in Connecticut. When I got the gig on Hawk and Dove, I had gone back to New York. I'd actually stayed with Jerry. Just an outstanding, just one of the best guys you're ever going to meet in comics and just a stellar talent. He His... His biggest claim to fame, probably the highest selling thing he ever did, was the actual adaptation of the Batman 89 movie. I think he was working on it that summer because uh, because that, that stuff was working in advance. They were shooting the movie that summer, and, and he was already in preparations to draw the graphic novel that they would release. So Jerry was just crushing it at that time, and, and, and his art is so amazing. And that adaptation alone, other than his Shazam work and his Superman work and his All-Star Squadron and, and his Fantasy Four, everything, Jerry just outstanding talent gave me a nod good to see you you know I'm, I'm walking in with my boys larson mcfarland I'm, I'm part of a gang now todd and eric I, like we just that afternoon we're a gang we're 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 todd and the l boys at least two of them right so we make our way over to mike carlin who is the superman editor and he sees my superman jacket he's like where'd you get that where'd you get that oh my gosh i need that and i knew that he would totally dig it but uh the other thing that I, I kind of didn't mention is I'm already on the way out of D.C. at this convention. I am negotiating for a page rate for my final issue for issue five, which I'm going to 
go home and finish as soon as this convention's done. And then I've already gotten a bunch of offers from Marvel to go do a bunch of stuff in the X-Men office. And I had already shared this with uh, Eric and Todd and how excited I was going to be over at uh, at Marvel. And, and again, Todd's like, what are you doing over there? What else? What? Well, Wolverine could use use somebody, uh, you know, like you, a uh, uh, fresh fresh voice. He's already sizing me up, man. Todd, Todd knew the drill. Todd knew the drill. The L boys, okay. Never forget it. The L boys. So, uh, Mike Mignola wanders up over to where we're talking. Myself, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, Mike Carlin, and there it is. And Todd had just said, "Oh, that Mike Mignola. He always." Never recognizes me. So Todd reaches out again, goes, Hey, Mark, how you doing? And Mike, right in front of my eyes, I'm sorry, um, who are you again? And he goes, Todd fucking McFarland. Maybe you'll remember this time. And I howled. And I, I think for more than anything, Todd did that for our, like, our, our entertainment, I think, because he definitely was the big man on campus to Eric and myself. Eric, like I said, had done probably 20 comics. That's that point. I mean, Eric was prolific. Uh, but at that point, you know, cause Todd, he's doing Spider-Man. He's done Hulk. He's, he's, he's among us right now at that time. He's the veteran. Okay. And, uh, and, and the established guy. And, and Todd is a good, again, I, and it, Todd is about seven years older than me. Again, I'm, I am the young pup of the group. Always have been. I, I, I'm, I'm, there's no change in it now. Right. I mean, so, uh, again, all the guys are minimum four or five years, uh, six years, uh, Older than me, uh, easily. Mark Silvestri is is maybe a decade, ten years on me. Um, great looking guy, amazing, but yeah, a good ten years on me. So we're howling after this Mignola because I mean Todd called it like he he always I don't know what it is. And then Todd looks at my pencils and he goes, "Oh, you're drawing a little like Mignola here." And I go, "Yep, I'm I'm kind of digging what he's doing." He's like, "Oh, be careful, be careful. Don't stray, don't stray. Keep that commercial line." And uh you know, Todd, right there, giving me, giving me advice, looking out for me, telling me to, you know, stay the course, keep doing his commercial product, his commercial work as possible. And, uh, that night we leave the party and we go back up to the room to, to, to end our, <laughs> end our time together. And Todd, uh, Todd lets it rip that he believes of all the L boys right in front of two L boys, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, I'm gonna tell you, oh, but, but you, you guys, you, you, you know, you, you got talent. You know, you, you guys got talent, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm a betting man. I'm a betting man. My money's on them. Lem's going distance. Run him. He can do two books a month, and you, you know what, what kind of advantage that gives you, like John Byrne. Two books a month. That, that's an advantage. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, don't mean to insult, but, uh, my, my money's on, uh, on Ron Lim to go the distance out of, out of, out of, out of the elbows. And I just remember going, okay, buddy. And look, so here's the deal. We're competitive. We're all competitive. We're still all competitive. I'll always be competitive. And at that moment, I just smirked like, okay, like Ron's great guy. Ron's super talented, but there was no way I was being held back. Um, I had, you know, for me at that moment, I had gone from a, comic book that no one had published in 20 years, characters that no one had published called Hawk and Dove. And I had uh, taken that to hit comic book status and been hired to draw the X-Men. I, I, it felt like I leapt a bunch of steps. Um, I, I, I did. My editor 
Mike Conlon was furious when I told him I wasn't coming back and I wouldn't be continuing because they said, we're going to, based on the Hawking and miniseries, we're going to give it a regular series. And I said, oh, I, I won't be around to draw it. I'm going to Marvel. And the funny thing is, Mike Conlon said to me, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. You, you know, you know, they wait for guys like, like us over here at DC to break you guys in and then, and then they scoop up and take, and take you from us. And I'm sitting there going, so I did everything right. Uh, yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, I love talking to, they had that great miniseries. We had one great epic story when I read the breakdown, the two sheet description that Barbara and Carl Kiesel, they were married at the time. Now she's Barbara Randall. Uh, Carl Kiesel and Barbara Kiesel had written up a proposal that had thrilled me. I thought I can draw the crap out of this. And again, like I said, I had to wait till everybody, I won't name names, but I know about six different names they offered Hawk and Dove to. It all had turned them down. Obviously, because Hawk and Dove was no guarantee. It wasn't going to sell. It didn't have an established track record. These characters hadn't been published in, in almost 20 years. They'd been kind of bit players. Um, so, so, so now we're bringing back Hawk and Dove with a brand new Dove. I mean, it had risk written all over it. It was perfect for a young guy trying to cut his teeth. And Todd understood that because he cut his teeth on Coyote and Infinity Inc. And now he had the keys to the kingdom with Spider-Man having already done a run on the Hulk. Eric was coming off Doom Patrol and was heading towards Marvel. And we were all heading for an awesome collision course where we would become, uh, the, the biggest players in our business. Uh, the, the work that we were yet to do, the L boys along with Todd and Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, the work that we were about to do was going to change comic books. And I, I'm not going to tell you that I felt it that night, but I felt there was a special bond there. Todd was, uh, like I said, just endlessly entertaining. And this is when Todd was a prolific dude. He would, uh, a year later, do bi-weekly Spider-Man and do a DC crossover, at least half of it, uh, before he bowed out, called Invasion. Uh, Todd was prolific. This is the Todd McFarlane that drew comic books every month. Todd has not drawn a 22-page monthly comic in 25 years. But this guy was hungry. He was eager to dominate. And we were part of the new class. As I said earlier, the dearth of new talent was noticeable. There weren't like a lot of new names like there were in the late 70s, early 80s. And lo and behold, we were those guys. The L Boys, Lee, Lightfoot, Larson, Lim. We were a uh, representative of a new age. We weren't, we weren't alone, obviously. Dale Keown is a guy who was in there. Um, Mark was already in for quite some time since about 83, 84, but he would join with our posse, become part of our peer group, Bulls Portacio, um, who had been an inker on Art Adams, would break out to be one of the most amazing talents in comics. So this union that was forged in that convention center, San Diego, 1988, was about to bear some of the craziest fruit, and we would uh, be in the early gestation stage of changing the comics industry. We would change the way comic books were printed, the way they were colored, the way they were distributed, the way they were marketed. And it all started that Friday afternoon in 1988 at the San Diego Comic-Con when Todd McFarlane, also, I need to tell you, I also had a mullet. He was not alone in his mullet. We were all mulleting. Eric had his little kind of coif of hair, but we had our mullets and our jean jackets. And, uh, we forged a bond and a friendship and, and a, a relationship, and it was the early stages of what would be an alliance that would really turn comics um, on its head. We were the new guys. Like I said, everything that had come before us was energizing us. 
Frank Miller had been, you know, his work on Dark Knight had taken him to the, to the, to the Rolling Stone magazine, critical acclaim. Watchmen was, was being heralded as a, as a, a literary classic. I mean, these are comic books. Um, it seemed like the future could not have been brighter and we were the new class and we were very intent on making our mark as that one, uh, 12 hour period. Yes, we saw each other the next day, but then it was more about signing. Todd wandered up to me when I was during my Hawk and Dove signing. Hey, bud, good to see you. What's up? Good hanging with you. Am I going to see you tonight? Um, very friendly, very outgoing, very determined. Uh, Todd had flown in from, uh, Vancouver. That's where he was living at the time to attend San Diego Comic Con. Uh, I believe, uh, Eric was either in Washington or San Francisco. I was Southern California. As always, one year later, prior to San Diego Comic Con, one year later in 1989, Todd and his wife would fly out a few days before the show. We would hang out, go to Laguna Beach all day, and then we would hang out. I would actually sleep in the room with Todd and his wife. Uh, and we would crack each other up to the point where, um, his beautiful wife had to tell us to shut up so she could sleep because Todd and I were goofing and giggling, um, <laughs> uh, at, at a specific cartoon that was in the San Diego Comic Con. But this relationship, these, this alliance was forged right then and comics were about to change forever. And we are going to cover all of that change in all the weeks to come. It took me uh, 20 episodes to get you here. There'll be some backtracking along the way, but certainly, um, I don't think anybody who saw us on that floor that day, the artist who started on Coyote, the guy from Doom Patrol and the kid who was doing Hawk and Dove, I don't think anybody knew. And the guy who does, who, who's doing Alpha Flight and Psy Force and all of our stations at that time, we weren't the important guys in, uh, 1988, that, that summer. Uh, that's why guys like Mike Mignola, who, who are you again? For the tenth time, or however many times Todd would would uh, recount it to us, um, that was a magical day. Right there, I can put me, I can put us right back to exactly where we were standing when I was talking to Eric and Todd went up, and when we left and we went to the hotel and we went to the Bennigans and we went to the party and we went back to the hotel and all the fun we had. That is a magical moment in time. And uh, again, we were a bunch of uh, a bunch of you know up and comers. Even Todd, having been around longer than us uh, with the big two at that point, we were still. Just starting to find our, our, our sea legs and, and, and starting to find our voices. I mean, me, I'm, I don't even have the third issue of Hawk and Dove out at that point or, or it's just coming out. But, uh, this is the start of something special and I will never, ever forget. This is literally the 10th time I've done this, this show. The Elboys! The Elboys! Just riveted me. That guy, uh, he was already sizing us up and he told me to my face, Ron Lim is going the distance out of the four Elboys, out of Larson Lee, Liefeld, Lim, Ron is going to grab the brass ring. He's going to grab the, the trophy. He's going to, he's going to get the gold. Okay. Not the brass ring, the gold. And, uh, I thought that was pretty ballsy, but it also entertained me to no end. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and it showed, uh, just how intent these rivalries, uh, and intense they, they would become. But, uh, but it starts with this alliance. It starts with this friendship. And, uh, this is where comic books were starting to change and the new blood was being injected. And like I said, uh, Doom Patrol guy, Hawk and Dove guy, and Hulk guys, right early on, Spider-Man guy. And Spider-Man was not what Spider-Man would become. The X-Men books were still dominating. Todd would turn Spider-Man into something truly special again. But, uh, that, that, that alliance, that fun, that friendship, that's very special. Really great memories. And, uh, and, and come back because, uh, in the weeks to come, we are going to build 
this entire uh, era, this new age out as, as much as I can help you out as the old guard makes way for the new guard because we are there to make our mark for sure. And I hope that you guys will follow this journey with me as you have so far. Thank you for being part of Rob Observations. Thank you to listening to this uh, remembrance and, and, and these these uh, these stories of, of comic books at, from, from my point as a fan to now as a professional. Please follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. The full Robert Liefeld. I say this each time because I didn't get the Rob Liefeld. That got squatted. But at Robert Liefeld, I got a blue check. That's me. Say hi. Let's talk. Uh, spread the word about this podcast as much as you can on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld. I got that moniker, at Rob Liefeld. Find me on Instagram. Again, a blue check will tell you that I am for real. I am on Facebook. I am all over the place. Please reach out. Please talk to me. Right now, I have Snake Eyes Dead Game, my bucket list G.I. Joe super adventure that's that's uh, that's blowing up in comic stores. Please check that out. I have an entire catalog of work from Deadpool, X-Force, Cable, Youngblood, Domino, all uh, 30... 32 plus years and counting in the comics business. Check me out. Come back next time. We are, uh, we are going to have some fun and uh, take care of yourself. Stay safe and we will talk again soon.